scary girl. Hey, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead, Dead Time Stories. If you're new to the show, this is a weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together and we talk about ghost stories, true crime, paranormal, supernatural, all sorts of just weird and spooky, whatever we want to talk about. Yeah, because it's our show. And not yours. Ear. Ear. Um, hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. We've already been chatting for a few minutes before we hit the record yeah. button. One thing I, I'm, I'm, uh, one thing I did manage to say for the air is talking about how me and Val are trying intermittent fasting. Ooh, girl, you already know I've been on that life for years. But you do, so do you do the, like, you do, like, the 16-8 I go back and forth between 16-8 and 18-6. 18-6? Oh, what? No, we're, um, so I've tried to give myself, like, windows for for eating before, and it's never, ever worked, because I can't do anything every single day. So we're, so uh, I talked about trying the 5-2 and two method, uh, so that instead of going by hours, it's by days, right? So you basically eat normal for five days a week and fast for two but we're starting with one which is also fine right are you doing a full 24 hour fast or on that window you're just going to do a 16 we do a full 24 hour fast so we eat dinner tuesday night and then we mark the time that we finish dinner and then that's when we start dinner the next day so we we try to finish dinner around like 7 p.m on tuesday and then we eat dinner at 7 p.m on wednesday um, so I'm about a half hour short of 24 hours right now, and I'm fucking starving. I'm so hungry. <laughs> it's really not that bad. I'm pretty okay. Um, yeah. so this is our second week doing it. We did it last week, and I haven't, like, cheated either time. Like, I've gone through the whole mm-hmm. day. I haven't eaten anything. Um, I just drink water, and somebody suggested... Now, you know I don't really drink coffee. Like, I drink coffee if I, like, yeah. need coffee, but I put, like, a ton of sugar and, and milk in See, it. See, and that's what gets me through my fasting window is coffee and green tea. But you're supposed to drink black coffee. Like, you're not supposed to sweeten it. Um, you can put, like, low milk in it, like skim milk or almond milk, and as long as it's a small amount, it doesn't break your fast. Yeah, no. Nah. Uh, and I don't really do tea either. Anytime I do either of them, they have to be, like, super sweet. But somebody was like, do it. Go for the black coffee, and it'll... Somebody swore to me that it would, like, make me less hungry. She was like, it'll suppress it will. your appetite. It is. Bullshit! It's, it's I drank a black coffee, and I'm hungrier than I ever was. Now, to be clear, I'm not promoting... This is, um, like, a control Controlled fast. This isn't like I don't promote eating disorders, and I'm very comfortable in my big fat body. Anybody who's listening, oh yeah, um, do your research before you decide that this is what you want to do for your body. But it works for a lot of people. I mean, I I started doing it because of the theater lifestyle because I realized I was eating so late, no matter what. I, if I was in rehearsal, I was eating late, so then I don't eat until way later the next day. Well, and that's why the, eating the windows were so hard for me. It was so hard for me to be yeah. like, every day I can eat between this time and this time. Because yeah. when you do theater and you do, like, night gigs where you're singing at nightclubs, like, I, that's yeah, you primarily a lot of what I do, I wouldn't eat until fucking late. And my schedule is crazy. So it's a lot harder yeah. for me to be like, okay, I can eat for these 16 hours every day and not these other eight because... Because 
Well, I mean, right now I have a pretty regular schedule because of coronavirus. But in general, I have a pretty crazy, like, all over the place schedule. So it's a lot easier to be like, okay, this day I'm not going to eat until this time. This, like, one day a week. Um, so, yeah, it's been going pretty well. I was going to say what I do, because, again, I I really stand by the fact that, like, I'm getting closer and closer to 30. And I've noticed changes in my body come quarantine because I've been more sedentary but I think the only thing that has let me continue to eat like shit and drink like I'm 21 and not totally fuck up my body has been intermittent fasting (laughs) it's been the only thing that's like kept me at a constant and what I do is I I have an app that tracks it so when I stop eating for the night I hit start fast and then it's set once it hits 16 hours, it sends me a notification. But normally I know if I stop eating at 10, I'll eat again at like two or three the next day, which was already normally my normal like eating schedule. So if I want to extend it, I'll wait and like not eat at two, but eat at like three or four. Yeah. Um, and the next step you could take is a lot of people do the one meal a day lifestyle. So they basically intermittent fast and then once their fasting window opens you can have a snack but you're only having one meal a day so you're having one full meal and then you're having tiny snacks and then once you're done eating you're like done eating for the night but you can eat whatever you want for your one meal of the day because it's one meal a day i'm a big fan <laughs> yeah no i i, I don't like know. it a lot i mean i like to eat you know <laughs> but i i just have never had very like I've just never had very healthy eating habits. And, like, I don't know. I I don't know. Like, I've tried all sorts of shit. But it's a a difficult thing to learn as an adult when it's something that you never learned growing up. And, like, trying to Mm -hmm. adapt it is weird. So I've tried all sorts of things. And, like, I don't mind. I miss. It's weird to say I miss the gym because I genuinely miss going to the gym. Um, I want to get back in. I miss lifting, like, now, and I haven't lifted in a while, like, the, in the last few months when I was going to the gym, I was literally just getting on the treadmill, but I'm, like, I miss lifting, like, it made me feel really, like, tough, and I don't have, you know, the biggest weights I have here are, like, 25 pounds, um, but I was, like, your girl was deadlifting, like, not a lot if you're, like, a, like, somebody who's super into it, but I was deadlifting, like, a good 175, and I was, like, doing, you know, I felt, like, a big badass, and, you know, I don't mind. I, I like being thick. I like being thick. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, so it's not, for me, it's not about, I mean, it's nice to look better, but for me, it's about feeling better. Like, I've been so lethargic and, like, I can't go to the gym because of COVID and, like, there's not really much for me to do. And so it's nice to be like, okay, well, then let me let me work on this one thing I can work on. So, yeah, I'm just super hungry, but I'm okay. I'm not, like, depriving but pa- myself. Yeah, right? I was like, it'll get easier and easier. And then, like you said, it's, it's sort of a matter of realizing, like, how I – what my eating habits are and when do I turn to food and what's triggering me wanting to turn to food. Is it literally because my body needs sustenance or is it because I'm feeling some type of way? I mean, like, right, like, a lot of times I'm Because for me, nine times a ten, it's because I'm feeling some type of way. Yeah, right. And so I'm like, like, I need, I feel kinds of things. For me, it's like, I'm in the mood to taste this particular taste. I really just want to taste some jerky right now. I'm going to eat me some jerky. I really just want to taste some chippies. 
Oh my god, mm. Doritos are like Doritos are my kink. Like, <laughs> mine is, I was like, mine's sweet things. I'm like, I need some fucking cookies. Yeah, and Val's a sweet things person. Val's super into ice cream. Like Val would yeah. murder somebody for ice cream. But yeah, I'm a salty. I'm a salty bitch. And <laughs> surprise, I, I learned me some Doritos. Um, but yes, I'm. I don't want anybody to feel like I'm being deprived. Um, I'm. Everything is totally cool. I'm just <laughs> trying something different. But yes, I'm very hungry today. I mean, in general, I've been, and I'd be, I, I, I'd be fine. I'm fine most of the day. Every now and then it's like you get that, you know, your tummy will rumble. And you're you like, get the pain. You're like, I should probably eat something. And then you're like, oh, no, I'm purposefully not eating something right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. But. Right. But yes. No, I like it. I support it. I, what I always hated about the fact that. I would do it, and once I found out, like, I started just in college eating late and then being like, I don't want to eat again until 3 or 4 o'clock, so I'm not eating until 3 or 4 o'clock. And then I got on Reddit, and I discovered that it's a thing called intermittent fasting, and there's a whole community for it. Yeah. And then I started doing it a little more religiously, and the number one thing that I would hate would be people telling me, like, that's wrong. You need to eat breakfast. You need to be eating. What you're doing isn't right. Oh, you're already so thin. You're just going to mess up your body and your metabolism. And all of those things are wrong. Like, that's, it's not true. Do what's right for your right, body. And that's why I'm like, I'm trying to clarify. Body, There's a not... difference between, like, fasting and, like, starving yourself. Absolutely. And so I just want to make it very clear that I'm like, I don't support starving yourself. And I'm not starving myself. I don't have an eating disorder. I'm just like, just, you You're know, consciously I'm trying something different. Pay attention. And that's, I was like, again, that's the other stigma that I don't like is people being like, you're starving yourself. That's an eating disorder. When it's like, right. I'm not, I'm consciously doing this. I'm taking care of myself. I know what my weight is. So I'm not going to be someone who's going to go and do, there are people in these fasting communities who do month long fasts. See, to me, that's eating disorder. Water. <laughs> I'm like, see, and mm. it was like, it is, but for some people who are, they're starting from the beginning and they need to start their weight loss journey and it's been hard for them. Sometimes when you see your scale go down so dramatically by fasting for 10 days, it gives you that jump start to then keep going and look at food differently and reestablish that relationship. Someone like me being at the weight that I'm at, I would die. I would die. I wouldn't be able, like, that's not healthy. That's where it's like, just do your research, but also, I don't know. Don't, I'm, like, don't food shame me if I'm choosing to do intermittent fasting and not eat until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Don't it's fine. go extended periods of not eating without talking to your doctor. <laughs> Please don't yeah. read on the internet and not eat for 10 days. <laughs> yeah. Um, because the other thing people do on these fasts when they do it healthy is they're also taking in the right amount of electrolytes and salt and nutrients that you need so that you can go on these fasts and not wipe out your body. But yeah, that's that's my rant about fasting because I'm in all those communities on Reddit. I <laughs> do all of the reading. <laughs> yeah, I'm not into uh, any of the communities. It's something Val has talked about a lot and I have other friends who do it. But yeah, I don't know. Like... I only recently was like, let me consider this, you know, because I've been looking. I feel like I need to do a 24 hour fast. (laughs) Yeah. 
I feel like for me, it's a really nice reset when I feel like garbage to just like not eat for a day. I feel like I'm just flushing out my body from all the shit that I put in it. Uh, last I'm time, like, let me take all this shit out and maybe eat an apple. <laughs> I'm just like, let's cut down my budget. Let's cut out a seventh of my diet. Honestly, yeah. And when see, you're only eating one meal a day, your pocketbook see, uh, is like, what up? Well, we still have, we got our new every plate box today and we still have two fucking meals from the last every plate box. I was like, we got to get on this. But um, one meal a day. But this is not a, a weight or health. Not, I was like, I could talk about this all day long. Uh, so please don't uh, take our advice over a doctor's advice. Just you know, talk to your doctor, do some research. I'm I'm not eating on Wednesdays right now until dinner time. I'm just skipping lunch and breakfast, and you know, snacking. yeah, you're just doing 24 hours. I'm just going to dinner time on Wednesday. I feel like when you say 24 hours. Like, I'm not going to eat for 24 hours. People are like, oh, but then it happens. And you're like, it's not that long. When I, It's not if, that long. When I think of waking up in the morning and going to bed at night and not eating anything between morning and bed, that sounds like crazy talk to me. But if I'm like, I'm going to eat dinner now and then not eat again until dinner tomorrow, that yeah. doesn't sound as, as loopy, as like, as like crazy. <laughs> but it's still 24 hours. But it's still 24 yeah, hours, like right. It's still 24 hours. But. Yeah. It's just weird. That's how I feel. Anyways, this isn't a podcast about fasting or intermittent fasting or and whatever. To be you clear, if to you're eat. listening and you've never seen us, I'm a big bitch. Like I'm not mad about it. I'm cute. Like I'm I'm thick AF. You know, like no tea, no shade. I'm not mad about it. This is just a like you know my my guts are jacked up and is what our body wants. And I'm trying to like you know reassess my guts that's all there you go you just gotta listen to your body that's so. where i was like i'm not hungry till four maybe i should look into what this intermittent fasting thing is. my body seems to like it so i'm really excited about the about eating dinner with my partner when they get home and cook dinner which i have prepped and i'm gonna eat the heck out of a mediterranean chicken bowl from everybody <laughs> i'm excited to hear more about your experiences my adventures with, with intermittent with fasting adventures and adventures and fasting <laughs> But it's like yeah. your favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you remember that because uh, we, oh, of I course, mean, we were when, just talking, well, we were just talking asking, about the other you were day, like, Adventures in Babysitting. I was like, that's Stephanie's go-to acid movie. Y'all, I love that movie. I don't think I've ever watched it on acid, but it's like it's my favorite movie. Yes, you did because I babysat you the first time I babysat you. I mean, I don't place. know if I watched it. If you understand what I, I didn't watch it. <laughs> I've sure. never watched that movie on Okay. <laughs> Did it get Fine. put on at some point? Sure, I believe that. You were, like, dead set on being, like, we're watching Adventures in Babysitting. But, I mean, I believe it. <laughs> I'm not going to argue I, about it. It happened. I was the one who was there who was not on acid. Who was not on acid. Not <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyways, we should probably get to the spooky stuff. I know. We've been talking about fasting. If for not eating minutes. for 24 hours doesn't scare you enough. I know. If that's not spooky AF, let's see let's see if we can get you. Woo! Alright, everybody. Hey All Sarah. Right. Hey Stephanie. Hey Leslie. Leslie. Y'all ready, Y'all ready to, talk to talk about, about some, some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Sarah, you're going first this week, right? Because you got a shorter. Ooh, I know. I love the way he does that. The ooh. 
Yeah, so good. And then it's a cameo, so you can see him go to, like, stop the camera. Do you know what and I'm then, talking about? Yes. <laughs> he, like, it's the stop at the end. He's like, and I'm done. And I'm done. He, like, breaks character right at the end and is like, Ooh. on to the next one. Stop. Right, exactly. <laughs> He's like, let me let me do the next cameo. Everybody wants, everybody wants Leslie everybody now. Everybody wants a cameo right now. Well, everybody. shit. Well, shit. All right, what I got for y'all today is. I love it. Um, mine, yeah, mine's kind of short. I'm talking about an old folklore, and it's similar to some folklore I've done before, but this is Indonesian folklore, and this is folklore of Wewe Gombal. Have you ever heard of it? Wewe Gombal? I have not, but I like saying it. No? Okay. So Wewe Gombal <laughs> is similar Wewe Gombal. in... Way, way. Where is she? She way, way back. She's way, way Gombal. She way, way gone, boy. <laughs> way, she way, way gone, girl. Um, <laughs> Oof, Gone Girl's a great movie. It is. Um, so, Weiwei Gomble is similar to other folklores, which I feel like a lot of folklore is based in the premise of protecting children. And so, mm. folklore is told to you in a way to, like, teach a child a lesson or teach a child to stay in line. Such like as... a fable, like a moral of a story kind of deal. Yeah. Like gotcha. Yala... La, blah, 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 blah. Like uh, Aesop's Fables... Kind of. I loved um, Aesop's Fables when I was a kid. I'm trying to remember. I know I, like, read a few, like, in school, but it never stuck with me. Like, the tortoise and the hare is yeah. one of Aesop's Fables. Anyways, um, so... Slow wait, wait, Gumbel... wins the race. Sorry, go ahead. Oh. There's a lag in between when I hear you and when I talk. This is going to be a <laughs> bitch to edit. Oh, like, no, a real I'm so bitch. sorry. <laughs> uh, she's similar to La Llorona. And if you guys remember me talking about Hug and Molly, uh, basically in the sense of keep you, kids need to stay in at night. Whereas La Llorona was kids don't walk by rivers at night and don't be out at night. Hug and Molly was strictly don't be out at night. Weiwei Gomble is out taking care of the kids who are abused by their parents. So Weiwei Gomble will go and abduct children who are out at night who have been neglected or abused by their parents. And where is the where is this folk story from? Indonesia. Indonesia, okay. So Weiwei Gombal's history um, is based on the story that this couple was married. Uh, this woman married her soulmate. They were in love. But later on in the mar- marriage... <gasps> as they always do. <laughs> later on in the marriage... Come to find out, she's infertile and can't have children. So what does her husband do? He cheats, beat her. like they all no. do. Okay, I mean, probably. Did you say both. beat her? I did say beat her. Oh my god! I mean, both no. answers are terrible. He's still he, garbage. He beat her to the punch of finding another woman. Oh my god, he's <laughs> terrible. So he's cheating. Apparently, she finds out, so she murders him. And then the town chases her out of the town, and with her being so distraught, she kills herself. So now okay. she's come back, and she's here to protect all the kids who are being abused by parents because they don't deserve to have the children that she didn't get to have. Gotcha. The notable thing about Weiwei Gombal, though, is Weiwei Gombal, again, like all of them, is described physically as being like an old hag. Mm. But Weiwei Gombal has very large breasts. Kitties? I knew that you travel yeah. to the ground. I wanted to go with penultimate, but that's not right. Pendulous. pendulous Very large, yes. pendulous breastuses that drag the ground and are shaped as being like big papaya fruit. They what? are long. They're long swinging titties. 
And when she kidnaps the kids, she hides them under her titties. Her titties. For safekeeping. And when she takes the children, she apparently will make them suckle on her titty, no matter how old they are. <laughs> and then she will also... <laughs> what was it that um, Christina did? Nanny's titty bops. It's Weiwei's titty bops. Titty bops. So Weiwei's got her titty bops, and those kids have to take those titty bops no matter how old they are. The other thing that it said that Weiwei Gomble does is Weiwei Gomble will feed the children human excrement, but she will hypnotize them to make them think that it's actual food, and then if they still refuse to eat it, she'll force it down their throats. Gumble, why? But she's taking care of them, but she'll do those things. But those are terrible things. I know. How are you taking care of them if you're making them eat poop, way with Gumble? Because it's got electrolytes. Stop. <laughs> she's not she's not giving them snacks to help with their fast. Uh, maybe she is with her um her titty bops. Her titty bops. She's giving her her titty bops. Um, and then also, not only that, she will smear mud all over the children's bodies to make them think that she dressed them in expensive clothes. <laughs> and she keeps the kids to scare the parents and make them realize what they've done. And apparently, as soon as the neglectful parents are sorry for mistreating their child, she, she will back. return them. All right, that's fair. Um, other times, they'll say that parents who were going out trying to find their kids they'll walk around the neighborhood beating on windows and trees and singing black black ting black black ting the name of the kid get out and it says it's repeated seven times and the hidden child will appear what black (laughs) black ting black black ting so if you were missing and weiwei gomble took you i would just have to walk around your neighborhood and be like, black, black, ting, black, black, ting, Stephanie, get out. And you would come out and you'd be like, you'd have to do that seven times, right? Covered in mud. We'll assume that the time I just did it was the seventh time. (laughs) I wasn't going to make you do it seven times. I was just clarifying. Well, okay. Um, So this was obviously a myth. You know, take it as you will. A myth. A myth used to scare children into staying in line, into listening to their parents, and also into making sure that children were staying indoors after dark because in Indonesia, there's also wild animals and things like that out in nature that need to be, you know, not, that kids don't need to be around. need to be protected from, sure. So that's the story of Weiwei Gomble and her pendulous... Titties. Titties. Titty and bops. her, um, uh, oh, what is it? Her scat fetish. And how she loves <laughs> to take care of kids to save them from abusive parents. Exactly. And I will she send, I, I was like, I wish that we were able to record in person because I would have sent you the drawings and pictures of what she looks like because it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Why don't I Google it? Tell me how Google to spell it. it. Any of them. W-E-W-E. Way, way. G-O-M-B-E-L. But she's got, like, crazy hair. She's got these big old titties. And then usually just, like, a little merkin poking out from in between the titties. Because she's not wearing clothes. Okay. Yeah, she a mess. She a mess. She a hot mess. 
Yeah, she's got some titty bops. But she got to take care of those kids. She got to feed those kids. With her titty bops. Those kids who are being abused. Oh my god, one of the pictures, like, she's got... Oh my god. (laughs) Isn't it ridiculous? One of the pictures, it's like, she's got the titty, like, wrapped around her arm. They're like so she has, big. She has so much titty that it's like wrapped around her arm and she's wearing her own titties like a, almost like a boa. Hey, like a you know what? Way, way gomble, the feminist icon we didn't think we needed. Yeah, who knew? But who that's knew? Way, gomble. Save the, the child kids. kidnapper. Kidnaps those kids. So that's my short little folklore story and I'm sticking to it. And we're not in Indonesia, so don't worry, kids. She ain't coming for you. She ain't coming you for you. You guys got ho- Hug and Molly's coming for you. Drag on the floor titty bops. Drag on the floor titty bops. So, Wait, wait, um, them titties gone, girl. Okay, cool. I'm going to go on and move on to my story then. Yeah, Stephanie, you said you got a long one. What are you talking about this week? Oh, and I didn't just mean your story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, come check out my way way gomble. Yeah. So I am talking about a ship called the Mary Celeste. Are you familiar with the Mary Celeste? Yes. You're making a face, right? So uh, yes. Of it. I yes. mean, do you already know? What's it disappeared, up with her, right? Or? Uh, no. The well, ship did not disappear. Oh yes, all the people did. There you go. <laughs> yes. I was like, something about it disappeared. Spoiler alert. Right. Uh, yes. So. The, <laughs> Did Wei so Wei Gomble get them? Were they all abused by their parents? Who knows? That's the whole point. So uh, the ship that would later become known as the Mary Celeste was originally called Amazon. And not the Amazon. I guess I, I would still call it the Amazon like you call it the Mary Celeste. The keel of the future Mary Celeste was laid in 1860 at the shipyard of Joshua Dewis in the village of Spencer in the village on Spencer's Island on the shores of the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia in Canada. The ship was constructed of locally felled uh, timber with two masts and was rigged with a brigantine. She was caravel built with the hull planking flush rather than overlapping. Needless to say, uh, uh, this is a lot to say. She's a big old fancy ship, okay? She as she wide as she thick, okay? So you'd say she's an Amazon Prime ship? Sure. <laughs> she's an Amazon Prime ship. Thank you. Free two-day shipping. So she was originally launched May 18th of 1861. And the documents described her as being 99.3 feet in length. 25.5 feet broad with a depth of 11.7 feet. Uh, a and girl. a big girl, we're looking at 198.42 gross tonnage. So like Oof. almost 200 tons. She thick. She thick. Okay, with like four C's. Her, her maiden voyage, that means like the first time that she'd be, you know, she'd be riding out because she had made it. So her maiden voyage out. in June of 1861, Amazon sailed to But she a wooden islands. maiden. She not an iron maiden. She not an iron maiden. To take on cargo of timber for passage across the Atlantic to London. After supervising the ship's loading, Captain McClellan fell ill. His condition worsened and Amazon returned to Spencer's Island where McClellan died on June 19th. 
John Nutting Parker took over as the captain and resumed the voyage to London, in the course of which Amazon encountered further misadventures. She collided with fishing equipment in the narrows of Eastport, Maine, and after leaving London, she ran into and sank a brig in the English Channel. Parker remained in command for two years, during which Amazon worked mainly in the West Indies trade. She crossed the Atlantic to France in November of 1861, and in Marseille was the subject of a painting, possibly by Honoré de Pellegrin, a well-known maritime artist of the Marseille uh, school. And in not 18... that well-known. Not that well-known. In 1863, Parker was succeeded by William Thompson, who remained in command until 1867. These were the quiet years. Amazon's mate later recalls that we went to the West Indies, England, and the Mediterranean. What we call foreign trade, not a thing unusual, happened at that point in time. So far. So far. Uh, one time she ran ashore in a storm and uh, enough that her owners like abandoned her after the wreck and somebody else acquired what was now at this point a derelict ship a man named Alexander McBean who was also a Canadian uh, because this ship started in Nova Scotia so within a month McBean sold the wreck to a local salesman uh, an American from New York, named Richard Haynes. Haynes paid $1,750 for the wreck and spent about $8,000, closer to $9,000, restoring it. Okay? He made himself the captain, and in December of 1868, he registered her with a collector of customs in New York as an American vessel under the name Mary Celeste. Huh, so she got a facelift. She got a facelift, you know, he like worked her over a little bit. It was bit, an expensive you know. facelift. <laughs> so then a new captain was bought on board, Captain um, Benjamin Spooner Briggs. I love Spooner. He was from Massachusetts, one of five sons of sea captain Nathan Briggs. All but one of the sons went to sea, two becoming captains. Benjamin was an observant Christian who read the Bible regularly and often bore witness to his faith at prayer meetings. In 1862, he married his cousin, because, you know, that was pretty normal back then. Yeah, sure. Keep it in the family. Sarah Keep those with bloodlines. An, Sarah with an H, Elizabeth Cobb, <laughs> and enjoyed a Mediterranean honeymoon on board his schooner, the Forest King. Two children were born, son Arthur in September of 1865, and his daughter, Sophia Matilda, in 1870. By the time of Sophia's birth, Briggs had achieved a high standing within his profession. Nevertheless, he considered retiring from the sea to go into business with his seafaring brother, Oliver, who had also grown tired of the wandering life. They did not proceed with this project, but instead, each invested his savings in a share of a ship, Oliver in the Julia A. Halcock and Benjamin in Mary Celeste. October 1872, Benjamin took command of Mary Celeste for her first voyage following her extensive New York refit, which was to take her to Genoa in Italy. He arranged for his wife and his infant daughter to accompany him, while his school-aged son was left at home with his grandmother. Briggs chose the crew for the voyage with care. First mate Albert G. Richardson was married to a niece of Winchester and had sailed under Briggs before. Second mate Andrew Gilling was about 25. He was born in New York and was of Danish descent. The steward, newly married Edward William Head, was signed on with personal recommendation from Winchester. 
The four general seamen were all Germans from the Frisian Islands. The brothers Volkert and Bos Lorenzen, Arian Martins, and Gottlieb Gudschau. I love that one. Gudschau. A later testimonial described them as peaceable, first-class sailors. In a letter to his mother shortly before the voyage, Briggs declared himself eminently satisfied with his ship and crew. Sarah Briggs informed her mother that the crew appeared to be uh, quietly capable if they continue as they have begun. Okay? So, stand-up guy, hired a bunch of other stand-up guys, everyone came highly recommended, everybody's pretty chill, right? On October 20th of 1872, Briggs arrived at Pier 50 on the East River in New York City to supervise the loading of the ship's cargo of 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, right? His wife and baby daughter joined him a week later. On Sunday, November 3rd, Briggs wrote to his mother to say that he intended to leave on Tuesday, adding that our vessel is in beautiful trim and I hope we shall have a fine passage. On Tuesday morning, Mary Celeste left Pier 50 with Briggs, his wife and daughter, and seven crew members, and moved into New York Harbor. The weather was uncertain, and Briggs decided to wait for better conditions. He anchored his ship just off of Staten Island, where Sarah used the delay to send a final letter to her mother-in-law. Tell Arthur, I make great dependence on the letters I shall get from him, and will try to remember anything that happens on the voyage which he would be pleased to hear. The weather eased two days later, and Mary Celeste left the harbor and entered the Atlantic. Uh Uh-oh. While Mary Celeste prepared to sail, the Canadian brigantine De Gratia lay nearby in Hoboken, New Jersey, awaiting a cargo of petroleum destined for Genoa via Gibraltar. Captain David Morehouse and first mate Oliver DeVoe were, no- were Nova Scotians, which the ship is originally from Nova Scotia, but it was bought by an American. And some writers think it likely that they knew each other, if only casually. Some accounts assert that they were close friends who dined together on the evening before Mary Celeste's departure, but the evidence for this is limited to a, re- a recollection by Morehouse's widow 50 years after the event. Oh, yeah, Do- okay. De Gratia departed for Gibraltar on November 15th, following the same general route eight days later after Mary Celeste. De Gratia reached a position of 3820 North, 1715 West, which is midway between the Azores and the coast of Portugal at about 1 p.m. on Wednesday, December 4th, 1872. Um, Land time, Thursday, December 5th. Sea time. <laughs> That's what time it was in real life, but not at what time it was on their boat. Not when they were on the sea. Captain Morehouse came on deck, and the helmsman reported a vessel about six miles distant heading unsteadily towards De Gratia. The ship's erratic movements and the odd set of her sails led Morehouse to suspect that something was wrong. As the vessel drew close, he could see nobody on deck and received no reply to his signals, so he sent DeVoe and second mate John Wright in a ship's boat to investigate. The pair established that this was, in fact, the Mary Celeste by the name on her stern. They then climbed aboard and found the ship completely deserted. The sails were partly set and in poor condition, some missing altogether, and much of the rigging was damaged with ropes hanging loosely over the sides. The main hatch cover was secure, but the fore and lazarette hatches were open, their covers beside them on the dock. 
The ship's single lifeboat was a small yawl that had apparently been stowed across the main hatch, but it was missing. While the binnacle housing, the ship's compass, had shifted from its place and the glass cover was broken. There was about three and a half feet of water in the hold, which is significant but not alarming for the size of the ship. A makeshift sounding rod, which is a device for measuring the amount of water in the hold, was found abandoned on the deck. They found the ship's daily log in, a log in the mate's cabin, and its final entry was dated from 8 a.m. November 25th, nine days what? earlier. Mm -hmm. It was recorded Mary Celeste's position was 37-1 north, 25-1 west, off Santa Ana Island in the Azores, nearly 400 nautical miles from the point where De Gratia had encountered her. Mm -hmm. DeVoe saw the, captain, uh, saw the cabin interiors were wet and untidy from water that had entered through doorways and skylights, but were otherwise in reasonable order. He found personal items scattered about Briggs' cabin, including a sheathed sword under the bed, but most of the ship's papers were missing along with the captain's navigational instruments. Galley equipment was neatly stowed away. There was no food prepared or under preparation, but there were ample provisions in the stores. There were no obvious signs of fire or violence. The evidence indicated an orderly departure from the ship by means of the missing lifeboat. DeVoe returned to report these findings to Morehouse, who decided to bring the derelict into Gibraltar 600 nautical miles away. Under maritime law, a salver would expect a substantial share of the combined value of the rescued vessel and the cargo, the exact award depending on the degree of danger inherent in the salvaging. Morehouse divided De Gratia's crew of eight between the two vessels, sending DeVoe and two experienced seamen to Mary Celeste, while he and four others remained on De Gratia. The weather was relatively calm for most of the way to Gibraltar, but each ship was seriously undermanned and progress was very slow. De Gratia reached Gibraltar on December 12th. Mary Celeste had encountered fog and arrived the following morning. She was immediately impounded by the Vice Admiral, uh, Admiralty Court to prepare for salvage hearings. DeVoe wrote to his wife that the ordeal of bringing the ship in was such that I can hardly tell what I am made of, but I do not care so long as I get in safe. I shall be well paid for the Mary Celeste. The salvage court hearings began in Gibraltar on December 17, 1872, under Sir James Cochran, the Chief Justice of Gibraltar. The hearing was conducted by Frederick Solly Flood, the Attorney General of Gibraltar, of Gibraltar, who also advocate general and proctor for the Queen in her office of admiralty. I love that title. It's so fucking long. Um, so... Degrassi is the one who wrote back to his wife saying, this has been a hell of a time, but thank God I'm going to get paid well. Um, DeVoe. Degrassi DeVoe. Was, is the name of the other boat. And was he the one who was on the Mary Celeste when they were bringing it back? He was the one that got sent to, like, man the Mary Celeste. To man the Mary Celeste. Do you think he meant that it's been a pain in the ass because the ship was a pain in the ass or because it's, like, haunted? Um, I think because the ship is a pain in the ass because it was originally manned by eight people and yeah. then he had to split up, uh, the team of Gratia had to split up to man both ships. So like, yeah. I think it was a big old pain in the ass and they only had half the people they needed to move it. How creepy would it be to be on that ship though, knowing that like, you don't know what happened to the people. You don't know before. what happened to them, but all their stuff is there, and right? Like they didn't take there. a lot of stuff. They didn't take food. Like all their shit is still on the boat. It reminds me a lot of, like, Roanoke. 
right? Mm-hmm. Where you're just like, what? Did, like what all their shit is still here, but what happened? Yeah, right. So they For, do the hearing, I guess, just to find out, like, sure, we don't know who owns this now, right? Nobody matter, so has a right to this. The you're the ones that brought it in. Like, how much is it worth? I guess we can give you all the money. So, do they give them the money? I'm getting to that. <laughs> that sounds like a no. Um, so basically they all went up and they testified what they had found. Um, however, like, which, you know, they found no signs of violence, nothing. It didn't look like they had been pillaged or any shit happened, but there was nobody there. The, the testimonies of DeVoe and Wright convinced Flood, however, the person who was, you know, doing the, the attorney general. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he was convinced unalterably that a crime had been committed. A belief... What? Right. A belief picked up by the New York Shipping and Commercial List on December 21st. The interference is that there has been foul play somewhere and that alcohol is at the bottom of it. Right. Okay. Always. Because they were shipping alcohol. Because there was all that alcohol on board. Sure. On December okay. 23rd, Flood ordered an examination of Mary Celeste, which was carried out by John Austin, surveyor of shipping, with the assistance of a diver, Ricardo Portonato. Austin noted cuts on each side of the bow caused, he thought, by a sharp instrument and found possible traces of blood on the captain's sword. His report emphasized that the ship did not appear to have been struck by heavy weather, citing a vial of, a, a vial of sewing machine oil found upright in its place. Austin did not acknowledge that the vial might have been replaced since the abandonment, nor did the court raise the point. Portonato's report on the whole concluded that the ship had not been involved in a collision or run aground. A further inspection by a group of Royal Naval captains endorsed Austin's opinions that the cuts on the bow had been caused deliberately. Or the bow, rather. They also discovered stains on one of the ship's rails that may have been blood, uh, together with a Ugh, deep, a deep sure. mark possibly caused by an axe. These findings strengthen Flood's suspicions that human wrongdoing rather than natural disaster lay behind the mystery. On January 22nd, 1873, he sent his reports to the Board of Trade in London, adding his own conclusions that the crew had got at the alcohol, he ignored non-potability, and murdered the Briggs family and ship's officers in a drunken frenzy. Even though there was no, like, there would have been evidence of that. Do you know what I mean? There's right? not blood everywhere or, like... Or bodies. Like, or why bodies. would they bring the bodies with them? They had cut the bows to simulate a collision, then fled in the yawl to suffer an unknown fate. Flood thought that Morehouse and his men were hiding something, specifically that Mary Celeste had been abandoned in a more easternly fashion and that the log had been doctored. He could not accept that Mary Celeste could travel so far while unmanned. So he's basically saying, no, y'all... There was a fight. Y'all took a ship that's been in a crime. Like, this is evidence. You didn't find some abandoned ship full of stuff. Which basically... there's no way in, like, nine days that it could have floated this far. That's his argument. Sure. Okay. Because if it's... Sure, Jan. Because... Now, the issue with that is that that means that if they're... If he says that they're liable for what happened to the people on the ship, they don't get paid. James Winchester arrived in Gibraltar on January 15th to inquire when Mary Celeste might be released to deliver its cargo. 
Flood demanded a, a surety of $15,000, money Winchester did not have. He became aware that Flood thought he might have deliberately engaged a crew that would kill Briggs and his officers as part of some conspiracy. On that January, like a lot of work for right, like, I know. On January 29th, during a series of sharp exchanges with Flood, Winchester testified to Briggs' high character and insisted that he would not have abandoned the ship except in extremity. Flood's theories of mutiny and murder received significant setbacks when scientific analysis of the stains found on the wood and elsewhere on the ship showed that they were not blood. Ooh, got you, Flood. A second blow to Flood followed in a report commissioned by Horatio Sprague, the American consul in Gibraltar, from Captain Schfult of the U.S. Navy. In Schfult's view of the marks on the, on the bow, that they were not man-made, but came from natural actions of the sea on the ship's timbers. With nothing concrete to support his suspicions, Flood reluctantly released Mary Celeste from the court's jurisdiction on February 25th. Two weeks later, with a locally raised crew headed by Captain George Blatchard from Massachusetts, she left Gibraltar for Genoa. So they just Ugh. let somebody else take the ship, like, fucking go Jeez. off on the ship. The question of the salvage payment was decided on April 8th when Cochrane announced the award of 1,700 pounds, or about one-fifth of the total value of the ship and the cargo. This was far lower than the general expectation. One authority thought that the award should have been twice or even three times that amount, given the level of hazard in bringing the derelict into port. Yeah. Cochran's words were harshly critical of Morehouse for his decision earlier in the hearing to send De Gratia under DeVoe to deliver its cargo of petroleum, although Morehouse had remained in Gibraltar at the disposal of the court. Cochran's tone carried an implication of wrongdoing, which says Hicks ensured that Morehouse and his crew would be under suspicion in the court of public opinion forever. So, what happened, right? <laughs> There's... Yeah, like, do we ever... I mean, I'm surprised that there weren't more people being like, what happened to all the people on that boat? Instead of being like, this is how much it's worth. Okay, that's not enough. Right. They're like, just like, whatever for those people who were there and the infant. We have no idea what happened to the people on the boat. Still to this day. Still to this never... day. So, thoughts of foul play. The evidence in Gibraltar failed to support Flood's theories of murder and conspiracy, yet suspicion yeah. lingered of foul play. Flood and some newspaper reports briefly suspected insurance fraud on the part of Winchester on the basis that Mary Celeste had been heavily overinsured. Winchester was able to refute these allegations and no inquiry was instituted by the insurance company that issues the policies. In 1931, an article in the Quarterly Review suggested that Morehouse could have lain in wait for Mary Celeste, then lured Briggs and his crew aboard the De Gratia and killed them there. Paul Begg argues that this theory ignores the fact that the, that the De Gratia was a far slower ship. She left New York eight days after Mary Celeste and would not have caught Mary Celeste before reaching Gibraltar. Another theory posits that Briggs and Morehouse were partners in the conspiracy to share the salvage proceedings. The unsubstantiated friendship between the two captains has been cited by commentators as making such a plan a plausible explanation. Hicks comments that if Morehouse and Briggs had been planning such a scam, they would not have devised such an attention-drawing mystery. He also asks why Briggs left his son Arthur behind if he intended to disappear permanently. 
Another suggested event was an attack by Riffian pirates who were active off the coast of Morocco in the 1870s. However, Charles E.D. Fay observes that pirates would have looted the ship, yet the personal possessions of the captain and the crew were all left undisturbed, some of highly significant value. In 1925, historian John Gilbert Lockhart surmised that Briggs slaughtered all on board and then killed himself in a fit of religious mania. Lockhart later spoke to Briggs' descendants, and he apologized and withdrew this theory in a later edition of his book. The Lifeboat In Cobb's view, the transfer of personnel to the yawl may have been intended as a temporary safety measure. He speculated from DeVoe's report on the state of the rigging and the ropes that the ship's main halyard may have been used to attach the yawl to the ship, enabling the company to return on board when the danger had passed. However, Mary Celeste would have sailed away empty if the line had parted, leaving the yawl adrift with its occupants. Begg notes how illogical it would be to attach the yawl to a vessel that the crew thought was about to explode or sink. McDonald Hastings points out that, the Briggs, uh, that Briggs was an experienced captain and asks whether he would have affected a panicked abandonment. If the Mary Celeste had blown her timbers, she still would have been a better bet for survival than a lifeboat. If this is what happened, says Hastings, Brig behaved like a fool or worse, a frightened one. Mm -hmm. Natural phenomenon. Commenters agree that some extraordinary and alarming circumstance must have arisen to cause the entire crew to abandon a sound and seaworthy ship with ample provisions. DeVoe ventured an explanation based on the sounding rod found on the deck. He suggested that Briggs abandoned the ship after a false sounding because of a malfunction of the pumps or other mishap which gave false impression that the vessel was taking on water rapidly. A severe water spout strike before the abandonment could explain the amount of water in the ship and the ragged state of her rigging and, and sails. The low barometric pressure generated by the spout could have driven water from the, uh, from the bilges up to the pumps leading the crew to assume that the ship had taken on more water than she had and was in danger of sinking. Other proffered explanations are the possible appearance of a displaced iceberg, a fear of running aground while beclaimed and sudden sea quake. Hydrographical evidence suggests that an iceberg drifting so far south was improbable and other ships would have seen it if there were one. That gives more consideration to a theory that Mary Celeste began drifting towards the Dolabarat Reef of Santa Maria Island when she was beclaimed, or sorry, becalmed. The theory supposes that Briggs feared that his ship would run aground and launch the yawl in the hope of reaching land. The wind could have then picked up and blown Mary Celeste away from the reef while the rising seas swamped and sank the yawl. The weakness of this theory is that if the ship had been becalmed, all sails would have set to catch any available breeze, yet it was found with many of its sails furled. An earthquake on the seabed or a sea quake, which I had never heard of before, could have caused a significant turbulence on the surface of damaged parts of Mary Celeste's cargo, thus releasing, uh, releasing noxious fumes. Rising fears of imminent explosion could plausibly have led Briggs to order the ship's abandonment. The displaced hatches suggest that an inspection or an attempted airing had taken place. The New York World of 20, uh, the 24th of January, 1886, drew attention to a case where a vessel carrying alcohol had exploded. The same journals issued on the 9th of February, 1913, cited a seepage of alcohol through a few porous barrels as the source of gases that may have caused or threatened an explosion in Mary Celeste's hold. 
Briggs' cousin Oliver Cobb was a strong proponent of this theory as providing a sufficiently alarming scenario, rumblings from the hole, the smell of escaping fumes, possibly an explosion, for Briggs to have ordered the evacuation of the ship. In his haste to leave the ship before it exploded, Briggs may have failed to properly secure the yawl to the tow line. A sudden breeze could have blown the ship away from the occupants of the yawl, leaving them to succumb to the elements. The lack of damage from an explosion and the generally sound state of the cargo upon discovery tend to weaken this case. So there's like all these possible theories, of course, aliens. There we go. I was like, where's the number one theory for what it actually was, which is aliens? In 2006, an experiment was carried out for Channel 5 television, the results of which helped to revive the explosion theory. Sella built a model of the hold with paper cartons representing the barrels. Using butane gas, he created an explosion that caused a considerable blast and a ball of flame, but contrary to expectation, no fire damage within the repu- uh, uh, there was no fire damage within the replica hold. What we created was a pressure wave type of explosion. There was a spectacular wave of flame, but behind it was relatively cool air. No soot was left behind, and there was no burning or scorching. So he's like, maybe that's what happened. So they could have been, like, scared by a tiny fake, not fake, but, like, miniature explosion they thought would be more, so they jump in. Right, like an explosion that was contained. But then they don't tie themselves up, and then they get separated from the boat, and now they're dead. Which, that's what most... Most of the theories, like, lead to that. Something happened on the boat. They got on the lifeboat expecting to come back to the big boat, but they forgot to tie the lifeboat to the big boat, and then they got washed away. Which idiot do you think forgot to tie the lifeboat to the well, big boat? not that the they captain. they subsequently hopefully ate later. Oh, my God. Obviously not the captain, because Briggs knew what the fuck he was doing, but one of his shoddy work dudes, like, whoever. Was like, oh, I was supposed to do that? Whoops. Um, so there's yeah, a lot. Yeah, I hope they of, ate him first. There's a lot of, like, mysterious retellings. There's a lot of, like, turning it into legends and something mythical happened. Bermuda Ooh. Triangle. Yeah. Um, some sort of mystical experience. Giant squid. Um, it is terrifying to think that you're on a ship and you come across another boat and that other ship is, like, Deserted, just completely deserted. And you I don't know. know what happened. That's terrifying. That's fucking creepy. That is so scary. It's really scary. That's why I was like, I don't want to be the crew that has to take the ghost ship back to land. Yeah, no, fuck. That. I would be like, not it. Not so, um, people have all sorts of theories. Most of them end with they didn't tie the lifeboat to the ship, and then they washed away. Um, but yeah, all sorts of mystical now you stories. Up. Now you fucked up. You have fucked up now. Now you fucked up. That was them. I love, um, <laughs> from that sketch, I love all the names he calls him. And my favorite is he calls him fat and skinny in the same <laughs> insult. Where he's like, you fat, skinny ass string bean bitch. And you're like, what? Um, uh, now you fucked up. Now you fucked up. So yeah, of course the... The final two are the Bermuda Triangle, and uh, even though she was nowhere near the Bermuda Triangle. She was nowhere near it. Correct. And similar theories about her being abducted, about people being abducted by by aliens. What ended Definitely. up happening with the ship was somebody else ended up buying the ship, um, and... It continues to eat people to this day. No. Ultimately, so it was rebuilt in 1872, and in 1885, um, the captain at the time deliberately wrecked it off the coast of Haiti because he was trying to 
to actually get from. that insurance money. <sighs> the power just went out. And in then my that's apartment. what became of it. <laughs> Shit. You froze. <laughs> anyways okay so where were we uh so we don't know what happened to the people that were on that ship there are many theories most of them end with such and such happened on the boat then they got on the lifeboat and they didn't tie it to the ship and they washed away that Mm -hmm. is like the main theory right or it was um aliens what happened to the ship after the you know after all this stuff happened and it was sold and rebuilt and whatever So the ship ultimately was uh, put back together in 1872. It was, like, rebuilt. And in 1885, the ship met its ending when it was purposefully run aground in Haiti as part of an insurance scam. (laughs) Which was what they were... Saying accused was of having done it in time. the first place, right? They're like, you killed everybody, and now you're just trying to get money for bringing this ship in. So, in and now November, the new owner is like, I'm just gonna get money for bringing this ship in, right? He's like, <laughs> got him. So the the new captain was replaced by, uh, uh, well, there were a few captains, but at this time, the captain was a guy named Gilman C. Parker, and. During the the years that he had it, the ship's port of registration changed several times before reverting to Boston. There are no records of her voyages during the time, although Brian Hicks, in his study of the affair, asserts that the one of the many people that tried to took her on, right, like tried really hard to make a success of her. The guy who owned the ship um, was a man named Wesley Gove, and he hired like all these different captains. He owned the boat itself. But he was trying desperately to make this ship profitable. To get someone to... Oh, I was going to say, was he hiring different captains to get them to wreck the ship and they wouldn't do it? Or he tried to make it work legally for a while and couldn't? He couldn't. Well, it was ultimately the captain, not the owner, that conspired to crash and fuck up the ship. So there was the guy who owned the ship. He was like, I've done... He kept hiring new captains. Like, I don't know how to make my boat make money. Please do whatever you can to make money. And this dude, Gilman Parker, was like, oh, I got it. So... make you money. In November... There's always money in the banana stand. Wink, wink. That was him, yes. In November of 1884, Parker conspired with a group of Boston shippers who filled Mary Celeste with largely worthless cargo, misrepresented on the ship's manifest as valuable goods, and insured her for $30,000. That would be the equivalent of $850,000 today. So almost a million dollars. They're like, oh yeah, there's like a million dollars worth of cargo on here. (laughs) And in reality, it's like three boxes of paper and some chopsticks. Right. On December 16th, Parker set out for Port-au-Prince, the capital and chief port of Haiti. On January 3rd, 1885, Mary Celeste approached the port via the channel between Gonave Island and the mainland, in which lay a large and well-charted coral reef, the Rochelos Bank. Parker deliberately ran the ship up onto the reef, ripping out the bottom and wrecking her beyond repair. 
Whoa. He and the crew then rowed themselves ashore, where Parker sold the salvageable cargo for $500 to the American consul and instituted insurance claims for the alleged value of $30,000. When the consul reported that what he brought was, that what he bought was almost worthless, the ship's insurers began a thorough investigation, which soon revealed the truth of the overinsured cargo. In July of 1885, Parker and the shippers were tried in Boston for conspiracy to, con- to commit insurance fraud. Parker was additionally charged with willfully casting away a ship, a crime known as barratry at the time, and carrying the death penalty. What? I know. <laughs> I tuned out for a second, but then you came in with that charge, and I was like, hold on, What? <laughs> The conspiracy case was heard first, but on August 15th, the jury announced that they could not agree on a verdict. Some jurors were unwilling to risk prejudicing Parker's forthcoming capital trial by finding him guilty on the conspiracy charge. Rather than ordering an expensive retrial, the judge negotiated an arrangement whereby the defendants withdrew their insurance claims and repaid all that they had received. The barratry charge against Parker was deferred, and he was allowed to go free. Nevertheless, his professional reputation was ruined, and he died in poverty three months later. Womp womp. One of his co-defendants went mad, and another killed himself. Begg observes that if the court of man could not punish these men, the curse that had deviled the ship since her first skipper, Robert McClellan, had died on her maiden voyage, could reach beyond the vessel's watery grave and exact its own terrible retribution. Sure, okay. In August of 2001, an expedition headed by marine archaeologist and author Clive Cussler announced that they had found the remains of a ship embedded in the Leaf Reef. Only a few pieces of timber and some metal artifacts could be salvaged, the remainder of the wreckage being lost within the coral. Initial tests on the wood indicated that this was the type expects. Excuse me. This was the type extensively used in New York shipyards at the time of Mary Celeste's 1872 refit, and it seemed the remains of Mary Celeste had been found. However, the dendrochronologist tests carried by Scott St. George of the Geological Survey of Canada show that the wood came from trees, most probably from the U.S. state of Georgia, that would not have been growing in 1894, about 10 years after Mary Celeste's demise. Hmm. So we still don't really know. We don't really know anything. I mean, we know what happened to her there. We know that happened. Right, but we don't know if the pieces that we found are of her or of other shit. Yeah. So that is the story of the Mary Celeste. Damn. I knew about the whole um, first part where... All the people disappeared. uh, Yes, and, like, up until the point where all the people disappeared, but I didn't know the drama behind trying to get the money for the salvage boat and then what happened after with the people running it aground and then that not working and then them just fucking killing themselves. Right. <laughs> and then that's the end of that boat. Like, and then that's they the wrecked end. it beyond repair, so, like, that's the end. <laughs> they wrecked it, and now they did. They wrecked it and their lives beyond repair. Girl, they got wrecked and then they wrecked it. (laughs) Woof. Sounds like my Friday night, honey. (laughs) Woof. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for that and for the little hiccup of my power going out in between. This will be fun tonight. Yeah, that was crazy. And I don't even know what's going on. There's no storm or anything. Like, I'm going to go walk around and see if anyone else... Oh, no, the building next to us has power. So, yeah, who knows? We're going to figure that out. That's Maybe gonna be I got an a adventure. ghost. Oh, my God. Wei Wei Gomble's coming for me. Oh, my 
my god, she is. She's gonna put you under her titty. She's gonna make you suck her titty bops. Remember, come to my house, bang on things, and it's black, black ting, black, black ting, Sarah, Sarah seven times. Out. Oh, I have to say yes. get out. Yes. Oh, I didn't know. I just get it, it was... right. I'll write it down for you Please. before I get taken. I'm already before I get it. Back, back before ting? I get tooketh. Black, black ting. Black, black ting. Okay. Black, black ting. I just like it because it reminds me of ting ting. I knew that's why. I knew that was why. <laughs> All right, guys. If you want to support our show, of course, the best way you can do that is by subscribing to our Patreon. We have $1, $5, and $15 donation tiers. Of course, we also love it when you buy our merch from DeadTimeStories. Dot com. Make sure it's all one word with a Z, you bitches. You can also email us. But uh, those are the monetary ways you can support our show. The best way you can do yes. it for free is by writing us a five-star review on iTunes talking about how much you love the show. And that algorithm helps us get new followers. So it's a huge, huge, huge help. That's the best thing you can do without spending money. You can also email us at deadtimestories at gmail.com. And Sarah loves them emails, y'all. Send them in. We love it. I do love them emails. You know who I didn't get an email from this week? Zach. Zach. He must be behind. He must be behind. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Time Stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Got him. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Kernison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 